Hello and welcome to this, the 43rd episode of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I'm a 15-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And it's a week of good news, ladies and gentlemen, because as we are prepping for our show of Fight Night at the Electric Picnic which is just going to be an absolute blast uh, it's something I'm really looking forward to weirdly I've never even been to the Electric Picnic before so the idea of getting down there to perform this year uh, is making me very very happy indeed I've got a nice uh, tech crew coming down with me because the usual Fight Night gang are tied up so the uh, the wonderful David Bent who's a mate of mine from you know 20 years back uh, is going to be taking over tech duties on the day which I'm very excited about and you know as we're prepping for this gig it's uh, time for us to make a few more announcements uh, which is more exciting news this week and that is that Fight Night is returning to Dublin. Uh, I didn't think it was going to happen this year uh, but I'm delighted to announce that we will be playing um, three weeks in Dublin uh, later on this year. We will be doing two weeks at the Viking Theatre in Clontarf uh, and that's immediately out off the back of the Finland tour. We fly home on the Monday and opening Clontarf on, on the Tuesday. That'll be Tuesday the 9th of October. And we play right, right the way through to the 20th of October, which I'm very excited about. And then a week after that, we will be kicking off at Lanigan's Theatre Upstairs, which I'm so excited about. Um, anything in relation to Carl Shields is a happy thing for me. So we'll be going in there uh, just before Halloween. We'll be kicking off there in the lunchtime slot uh, on October 30th and playing right the way through to November 3rd, which is massively exciting. Um, it'll be strange getting back to a, a lunchtime slot with with Fight Night because that's you know where it started um, but I'm looking forward to getting back to it I think it's going to be an absolute ball I'm delighted to get the opportunity to play it in Dublin again which you know like I said I, I really didn't expect was going to happen this year uh, I thought we'd be doing exclusively international stuff this year but uh, just with the way the dates have fallen out it means we've been able to squeeze it in and been able to make it work with all the different venues and I'm absolutely over the moon but I have to say this is it. This is your last ever chance to see this show in Dublin. We won't be doing it here again. So if you've been listening to these podcasts for a while and hearing all about this show, or if you thought at the time it was on last, going, oh, geez, I must make it along to see that in the festival or whatever. Well, here it is. This is your chance. You have three weeks in Dublin uh, through October. Um, this is your only chance to get it. We will not be playing Dublin with this show again. Last chance saloon, ladies and gentlemen. Get your tickets now. So look, as ever, each week we bring you this podcast absolutely free of charge. We have promised stupidly I might add that we'll never ever charge for these conversations but of course as ever we are looking for you to put your money into Irish theatre what is the easiest way to do that go and buy yourself some tickets get out there support your local theatre company support your local theatre if tickets are slightly beyond your reach this week or this month go on over to a crowdsourcing website like fundit.ie with the Fringe Festival coming up and the Real Theatre Festival coming up man I can't call it the Real Theatre Festival can I I'm going to kick it in the ass for that one hey look it is what it is we've got to distinguish between the two of them okay so the Fringe and the Dublin Theatre Festival are coming up make sure you get out there and support both of those uh, if people are running campaigns over on Fundit um, of course there are ways you can support without having to put your hand in your pocket go and tell people about this podcast whether that's in person over a cup of coffee by sharing the link as a Facebook post or by retweeting the link on Twitter subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes which does a huge amount to help us in the chart position go back and listen to all our other episodes push Peter Daly up in those charts it makes him feel warm and fuzzy inside and of course leave us a review on iTunes please please Please, please, we say it every week, but it's really important that we keep doing it because uh, it keeps us right up there and keeps us relevant in the charts, which is a huge help on keeping our uh, our chart position out there. 
You can, of course, follow us on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland. Or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise Ireland. And so that brings us to our guest this week. And given that this is a week of many exciting fight night announcements, we decided that this should be a week for an exciting fight night guest. And so our guest this week is the man who created it, Mr. Gavin Costick, who I have so much time for. And uh, he's a man I owe an awful lot to, the guy who uh, you know, invented the show in a bag concept, which led to fight night, which led to everything that's gone on for me and Rise Productions over the last couple of years. Uh, I couldn't be more grateful to the guy. Uh, it's a really interesting chat with him. He's, uh, he's an intelligent guy. And and uh, and he's got really got his finger on his pull on the pulse of Irish theatre. It's uh, it, it's a wonderful one. I do. I owe him so much. Look, as usual, let's get straight into this. I'm not going to yak on too much. Here he is, the phenomenal Gavin Costick. The wonderful Gavin Costick. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. This it's is an amazing one for me. I'm it's, delighted. It's big honour. <laughs> you say the nicest things. Well, then, let us go as we do every week back to the very beginning. Yeah. At what stage did a career in the theatre? come onto your horizon yeah um, I'm, I'm 46 years old now and in 1984 at the age of 18 I went to Trinity College Dublin to study English a and fine educational institution that's right and I was very proud of going to Trinity and uh, uh, but that was the first time I'd ever been in Ireland ever and okay. I didn't know anyone at all in the country so and I was uh, shy but I, uh, I wasn't painfully shy. I wasn't unhappy shy. I just didn't know anyone. And I okay. had to look after myself and just generally keep going. Now, where were you coming from? Chester. So I was born and raised in Chester, which is in uh, northwest England. My father is Irish Jewish and he emigrated in the 1950s. And my mother's uh, from a Devon farming background. Uh, and they met at teacher training college. And unusually for the time, they agreed to move wherever, wh- whoever of them got the first better paying job or the first job, the better paying job. And it was my mother as a maths teacher. My dad was quite unusual because he was all for that kind of thing. I think my mother once said one of the reasons she liked my dad is he didn't mind that she could do the crossword more quickly. Where she'd had previous boyfriends <laughs> who were put out, you know, if she'd read something more intelligent or whatever. Or, or and indeed the job thing. So, um, so we happened, myself and my brother, older brother Connor, happened to be born in uh, Cheshire, which is in, middle, in, in the middle of Congleton, I think. Uh, Macclesfields on my uh, right. uh, they moved to Chester quite soon and I am a Cestrian I'm a proud Cestrian I've never really been much of a nationalist although the economic times interestingly is kind of interesting to me because I've become more uh, I do care about Ireland I, I find but I've always been more regional to be honest so uh, yes I grew up in England but I'm from the northwest of England right. it's a particular thing uh, and yes for years I would have described myself as a Dubliner right. rather than necessarily Irish as such Okay. Not, not out of objection, but out of, that's a big thing to say. Whereas a Dubliner, I could be, you know. Yeah. Um, but the point about that was Davin never really pushed the whole Irish thing and the Irish emigrant thing. Um, I was aware of it, but uh, what really happened was um, I applied to five universities in England that were next to cricket grounds because I thought I'll go somewhere where I can watch cricket, I'll play cricket a little bit and watch the cricket. And I applied to do law because as a young man I wanted to be Rumpole of the Bailey, you see. Okay. So... I went to the Birmingham University, which is near Edgbaston, right on the edge of Edgbaston cricket match, and they, they said, um, would, we'll tour you around, this is before the entry, and we'll show you the law library, you see. So we said, great. So I went to the law library, which is probably the most boring room I've ever been in. It's just files of paper, and you have to memorise them. I suddenly realised this was dreadful. And I slowly realised as well that I would probably not notice ever be a barrister because you need to be connected. And actually they said, well, I mean, this is the most successful... But this is the biggest law library outside of Oxford, Cambridge, London, Edinburgh, I think. 
how low down are we going on this? Like, you know, um, and also, you know, one in every 30 of them actually got to be a barrister. And I was thinking, oh, Jesus, no, this is, I'm going to be a solicitor. Mm. And I, at that age, that, that would have been living death mm. for me as a proposition. And um, so I applied to universities where the English language was spoken outside of Britain because the, the gap year was not heard of in those days. Mm. I needed a university to say I'd applied to. So I did apply to Harvard, Yale, um, Sydney, uh, somewhere in West Indies, and I got into all of them, but mainly because you paid fees. So if you want to go to Harvard, you just give them $20,000 or $40,000 or something, you know. And they'll welcome you with open arms. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> um, whereas because of the Northern Irish situation, Cheshire County Council gave you a grant to go to Ireland. And I am of the generation that would not have gone to university without some kind of grant. Right. Uh, support there are no fees that I can remember in those days just as that, that, that signing on fee that you did but it wasn't fees fees but I certainly wouldn't I lived on um, five pounds a week I think after uh, rent kind of thing um, so I was on less than a pound a day wow. so I was shy and didn't have any money and so I joined all these societies in week one and I eventually became auditor of the college classical society uh, the first non-classicist to have that I was very proud of that I met a man called Stanford and Luce and I don't know if that'll mean much to anyone now, but Stanford and Luce were great scholars of the, of the day. Uh, and then I joined the various publications. Uh, I, I invented my own magazine. Right. Uh, fact. And the reason I did that is because I wanted to talk to people, but it didn't seem right to phone up Seamus Heaney and say, I would like to talk to you, you see. Or Bo Diddley. I ended up meeting Bo Diddley. <laughs> uh, how, how would you meet Bo Diddley? You'd think, who would I like to meet in the world? Well, I'd like to meet Bo Diddley, obviously. He's the man who invented rock and roll, and he's a great man. He's since died, unfortunately. Um, so I thought, but if I'm, if I'm the editor of a magazine... I can say I would like to interview for our magazine. Yes, okay. And that's that's what I did, and that was great. A little like someone maybe setting up a podcast to go and interview people as well. <laughs> well, it's only yeah, it legitimizes the whole thing. Like you, you don't feel like a lunatic asking people, you know, what they. And um, but eventually, I realised that uh, people involved in publications really were uh, young fogies trying to be old fogies. Uh, a typical guy of the time who was a very nice man uh, called Quentin Letts, who went on to be a Telegraph and Daily Mail columnist, people know him, and he's that kind of, uh, he, it, like Ian Hislop, if you've seen mm. him, they always want to be like these people. So they wore like tweedy jackets, even at the age of 20. And uh, no girls. Uh, and somewhere in fourth year, I realised that in Players, which is the drama society of the time, and still is, they, they it was early days for technology, and they didn't do programmes very well. They just typed the names. And because I was in publications, I had access to a Mac, which was the first laser printer in a, outside of the the airport, I think, had one. Right. We had one. So there were two laser princes in Ireland that you could book for an hour ago. I could make programmes of a better quality mm. than they could, and more imaginatively. Uh, and I spent a year making... I made a programme for every single player show through a entire year. And uh, some posters. And then, um, eventually, then, then wrote um, a play, but only in my fourth year. So it was late in the day that I got interested uh, and I, I found the, the players a lot very jolly, very exciting. Um, people there at the time, some in drama and some not in drama, um, people like Michael West, Karen Ardiff, uh, Siobhan Miley, Gavin Quinn, Aidan Cosgrove, Jim Cullerton, Tom Murphy, also since died, we were a, mm. a, a Tony Award-winning actor. So and that would be only you know the top things to come to my head. So it was, yeah. a, it was a lively enough group, you know. Wow. It was a lot, Annie Ryan, Michael West. Yeah. They were all there. And it was a, a, a large, sprawling network. Yeah. People. And so, did you fall into writing accidentally then? They said that it was kind of, if it took till the fourth year, I mean, obviously you had 
the magazines and stuff gone, but writing specifically for theatre. Well, the quip at the time was that I was never any good at anything else, and I was reading, <laughs> I was reading a biography of um, Samuel Beckett, and he did the classic, I was never any good at anything else, which famously does not make me Samuel Beckett, but I was interested to hear that, the, 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 you know, what else was I going to do? Um, I auditioned for two or three uh, shows, and I was rather good, but basically I was always more or less third in a queue behind Tom Murphy himself. Right who played Brenton's Christian Love. And if I'd played Brenton's Christian Love, it, it might have gone a different way. And Jonathan Shanky, I was always behind as well. Right, he was okay. an agent with Lisa Richards. So the three of us would often be the same thing. And Tom Murphy, Jonathan Shanky, might be saying, would be offered the part. Right. Shanky next, and me next. Um, <laughs> so classically, I thought, well, why not do it myself? Like, I, you know, if, if I write my own play, uh, oddly not for me to act in, but it, get, it means I get to make theatre or be involved in yeah. theatre. And I guess, I mean, I did a couple of little student plays and I felt the frustration of, well, I'm saying these lines, but this line would be better, in my opinion, you know. <laughs> so why, why I do that? I think all the, the, the full commitment was um, there was a theatre company formed which eventually became Pigsback, and it was a large, sprawling company which had included an, a lot of people I mentioned, plus people from UCD and also uh, people from DYT right. uh, coming out of the youth theatres. Uh, Jerry Stanbridge was around at that time as well, and I'm not even mentioning, I can't think, I should remember, but the costume people and the set people, they were all going... And they did this play called Savages by Christopher Hampton. Right. And it was appalling. Right? It was complete rubbish. I only went to see it because I was friends of theirs. So I, I sat through the whole thing. And I said to Jim afterwards, why did you produce that play? Like, why would you produce a play that is that rubbish? Yeah. So I was more opinionated in those days. Why, what possibly made you want to do that, Tosh? And he said, well, you know, he sort of justified it a bit. And I said, well, look, if I could write a better play than that, would you produce it? And he said, well, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's clear. He, said, he didn't say it. He actually said, if you could, we'd do a reading of it for you in, as it turned out in the Dublin Theatre Festival, we would do a reading of it for you in project. Right. And then we'd see. And uh, in Pigs Back at the Time was a man called Paul Hickey, who's uh, an actor in London, and Cathy Downs, and they were central. And uh, I went home to Chester, and my mother had an Amstrad, and it's used as an accountant at this stage. She'd moved off to be a maths teacher. And she had one of these early Amstrads that had cartridges and a, uh, a printer with the dots down the side. You know, nice. the, the area was very good. So I sat there and I wrote The Ash Fire, which was my first play, in a two-week period. A, a sort of delirium, um, which is fantastic. I think brought it back. Uh, we read it with Jerry Stenbridge again. Pauline McGlynn was in the cast. Peter Hanley, I think, was wow. in the original cast. And um, they committed at that point that they would do it for next year. So it was a year later in the Dublin Theatre Festival that it was produced. So your first ever play was produced in the Dublin Theatre Festival? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm a modest, uh, humble kind of guy. But I think I've had five works in the Dublin Theatre Festival. Oh, bang on. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty it's spectacular. Bad, five in 15 years or something like that. But nobody, nobody knows. Cause nobody knows. But yes, it is true. Yes, that, The Flesh Addict. But the, yes, my first play was in the Dublin, Dublin Theatre Festival. You have to remember there's no fringe at that point. Yes, of course. So it, the, the festival amalgamated a number of companies uh, of different scales, I suppose. But it wasn't a fringe show anyway, so it would always have been a festival show, yeah. a proper slab of entertainment. And having been in that situation where suddenly your first play is on, you know, is at the Dublin Theatre Festival, yeah. at that point did you then go, okay, well let's see if I can make a go at this. And also, I mean, you had mentioned your brother. Was your brother writing at this stage? No, my brother is a socialist, he's a raving lefty uh, socialist worker, and he at that time was um, being a branch organiser, I think, in Birmingham. And he eventually came to Ireland later, so he does live here, and he came later to... Um, organised in the Dublin branches and he then went on to study history uh, at Trinity as a mature student as a way of 
uh, keep himself going, I think. Right. And he is now a historian and a children's author. He's written a number of children's books. So he, he's, he's had, a yes, a parallel career, but it's a slight, it's kind of coincidence. We get on very well. Um, my wife, Christine, thinks we're ludicrously competitive. So, like, it is, you know, if you watch play chess, it is, it is not, not a pleasant thing to watch. But <laughs> we're quite happy. We're off the, right. why would you be shit to be, you know, our, our favourite game, actually, I haven't played in a couple of years, but favourite game is tennis, because we're both equally bad. Which is the perfect level for um, hammering into each other. You know, if one was much better than the other, then it wouldn't be much, as much fun. Um, so, I know, making a living. I, I, I was a flaneur at that time, right? I, I lived off Grafton Street. Right. Um, I had a flat above um, Steps of Rome, uh, past Fresca, with friends of mine. I had a large circle of friends, and I, I didn't see myself as a, a playwright. I call myself a player. It didn't really feel right. I, I simply lived. I, I, I would get up in the morning, land before mobile phones. I would walk through town. I would meet people. I would socialise. I, I, and, and I would write. Um, I did a, present, a bit of presenting on RTE because someone overheard me in a pub banging on and they said, would you like fancy a slot with Marty Whelan? Me and Marty Whelan go way back. <laughs> and I used to sit on a sofa with Marty Whelan and chat. So that provided a small amount of money. Uh, it was in the early days when you didn't get a proper contract. It was an independent production company yeah. and you got paid for the year, half a day. Right. Because that was kind of enough money I needed to keep going. Yeah. As such, I, be- I took a FOSS scheme and I, myself and Tara Furlong, um, and Tara's looking at this, I'd get worried if I were now, get ready if Eddie's there to switch the thing off. Because myself and Tara Furlong <laughs> used to work behind the uh, box office bar in the old project. Yes. So, we, so I kept going with these kind of jobs. And yeah, whilst writing, but I was kind of living. Like, it's a bit of a hard thing to describe um it was a fun experience the Ashfire then toured very successfully they played um venues in the uk and ireland and i thought that's what happened you, yes, wrote, of you wrote a good play in two weeks <laughs> a festival producer now i did it well we worked it heavily after the initial reading but sure. yes you know it, it came through um but i do remember i was in um it went to london went to the tricycle and the company had committed i think eighty thousand pounds to the tour with, you know, the idea that they would sell tickets sure. to the show. And the first review came through, and it was from the Evening Standard, and I had the classic feeling of the young playwright, because I opened, I was in the tube, and I opened the Herald, proud of the fact that I'd written this play, and I'd never known anything other than people being quite positive. And I opened it, and there's a photo was there with the cast, oh, great, and whatever, and I read it, and it was an awful review. And the review had taken it that um, Nicholas de Jong, who's quite famous, and he he'd taken it that this was a poor analogy for the Holocaust because it was called fire and had Jewish people in <laughs> so right, two okay. and two were put together <laughs> fire Jewish people about the Holocaust right and actually at the time I was very concerned that it was actually a story about immigration uh, which happened to be Jewish and also that Jewishness couldn't and shouldn't be defined as uh, as being people who went through the Holocaust because then it's defined by this huge thing and it's, you know, and people make, writers make such an awful mess of things when they try and deal with the Holocaust in so many yeah. ways. And um, I was not doing that. But that's what the reviewer thought. And it said it was terrible. And I thought, oh my God, I've just wasted 80 grand of the company's money. Wow. No one will see this. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was an awful, awful feeling. And it took days and it picked up. We got very good reviews. And then we, we did talk. It, it did sell well. But uh, to answer your question, that was the first, in a way, moment of not only thinking... I'm doing this, but this isn't... <laughs> there could be some nasty moments along the way. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, okay, first one under your belt. Yeah. Relatively successful, touring around. Yeah. What was then the next step after that? Was it, okay, I don't need to worry about 
gigs with Marty Whelan or, or Project oh, Box no, Office. Oh, no, no, like no. I mean, I, mean I wasn't making... I mean, they, the company paid me the royalties, but, I mean, it was nothing to live on as right. such. Um, no, I... As I said, I, I carried on into the into the clubbing scene of the 90s uh, in my own way. And, with, again, with... You know, I was across a number of things, um, one of which was right in place. Um, I suppose the next bit... Um, ongoing relationship was with Patrick Sutton at the Gator School of Acting they asked right. me would I write the uh, end of year show which is their thing that they do an original show for the entire ensemble and I did one that was the second play and that was called The Drowning Room The Drowning Room and uh, tell you who was in that um, Fiona McGowan of Blue Rain yes Raincoats. of course yeah she was in that as, wow. a, as an underwater sea creature dressed in black leather with gel black hair I would be uh, very interested in seeing that yeah if you find the photographs from that is quite remarkable and also uh, Fiona Montgomery Flora Montgomery yes of course yeah. uh, she, she was in there as well and that became something that myself and Patrick went on to do five of those maybe it, I'm always intrigued by this because obviously I went to Trinity not the Gaiety and mm. for us our final year was three big full scale productions of established texts yeah. whereas the Gaiety with that big finish of the one bespoke tailor crafted play for that gang I mean obviously it has huge, adva- huge advantages in that it is specifically honed and crafted for this group of people but equally I, I think it can kind of be a tough gig as well because I mean is there an obligation on you or do you feel a moral obligation to give each individual person an equal time in the spotlight yes the, the short answer is yes I, I did and I do um, I said to the actors look the 16 of you it's whatever it's two hours long it's like a game of football right if you break it down you're on, only on the ball for what two minutes the entire game mm. so you get it into your heads now that you're part of this is that I quite simply always aimed that each um, actor would appear twice and have two scenes where they were uh, driving the scene okay uh, uh, and there are two opportunities within the whole thing and also that you'd obviously look at ensemble work and pieces so you'd yes. be looking at ways in which they would appear be seen you know yeah. and, and part of it and um, I would again you'd, you'd look for things like uh Sometimes I'd, I'd had a silent character who would appear significantly and notably, but not actually do an awful lot. Like the ninja, you know, who wears right. all, all white and they, they're not saying anything. We think, well, who's that? Like? <laughs> and then later, you know, they would have something to do. Um, but you're writing an ensemble. I mean, you're conscious of that. And you kind of relax a bit. You go, look, you know, Shakespeare was writing for 12 plus people. And yeah. they're much bigger plays, but you, it's perfectly doable. Um, mm. But it certainly is a challenge, and it's it's a toughie. Um, but ultimately, is your responsibility to give each of those young actors a showcase, or is your responsibility to write a well-crafted play, or are those two things mutually exclusive? I, I thought I thought at the end of the day, if the audience went out thinking that was great, that that was really good, they would think benignly on anyone who's involved yes. with this. Yeah. So people could say that's oh. not a bad approach. <laughs> you know, so I felt no, I felt the work of art came first. The, yeah. the, 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 this is now. Uh, Rightly or wrongly, but I felt that the work of art came first. But the the actors would, have, as I said, would have the opportunity within that to uh, uh, have a substantial uh, driving of the stage, as it were, as it went through it. But it was, yeah, sure, stuff, yeah. And so, with that, at what point did you start to drift towards kind of more dramaturgical work, and 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 I guess also kind of teaching playwriting as well. Yeah, I was still writing um, for. Um, Fishamble, uh, as they became, uh, the, probably one of my favourite plays that I'd like to see again myself uh, was one called um, The Flesh Addict, which in many ways was better than, uh, not better than, had a most, uh, that was also the festival. Very strong reaction, but it was about the um, the pre-Raphaelite movement. Right. And it was very interesting. When we went to London and said, well, same guy, play, there's the reviews, what do you reckon? They went, oh, well, it's not really Irish enough 
for us. And I thought, well, that was a lesson I learned. I thought, sod it. They, they didn't want an Irish playwright to be talking about British painters. Yeah. They didn't get it. And I was going, afterwards, I was like, oh, yeah, good point. But that, at the time, I was thinking, I got very high horsey about it. Yeah. Are the Irish doomed to have to write about what the English think the Irish should be writing about? Potatoes and turf and... and drink alcoholic... I mean, at one point. Anyway, no one got distracted, so you asked me. Yeah, so um, I used to live... One of the people I used to live with, with uh, one of my great friends in life, is Irene Kernan. So Irene Kernan, uh, who looked like, uh, at that stage, like a... Uh, she was a tremendously organised, uh, sensible person uh, whom I loved greatly, and she looked like a young Isabella Rossellini. Right. And... Uh, Slightly small version. Um, and she, for whatever roots, because she was nothing to do with theatre either, became the general manager of Bedrock. And she and Ginny Fay, and it, I think she'll always be remembered, were, I don't know who else, but they eventually got involved with creating The Fringe, and Irene was yes. the original general manager of The Fringe. Right. General manager of the Dublin Theatre Festival, and is now running the Edinburgh Sculptures Workshop in Edinburgh. Right. And she's someone I'd very much like to see back in the Irish arts world, if she ever would. She's, um, her partner is Lee Davis, people might know, Who's the uh, te- technical manager of the Traverse or something? But he's a technical manager. Yeah. Was technical manager with Steve Burke of various things um, in the late nineties, and uh, she said to me, you, <laughs> "You sound like you know what you're talking about, kind of thing, uh, or sort of." And then she said, "Well, would you run a one-off course for Bedrock?" So the original playwriting course was the one-off course for Bedrock for the writers they had. Right. That's my memory of it, anyway. Um, in all this if I have a false memory apologies but I, I do remember it's that and also I taught a little bit at the gate school but I did that for them uh, Michelle Reed uh, was there at that time she, so that was one she was on so what happened was as Fishamble became more successful more and more people sent plays and so it got to a situation where Jim and others didn't really have time to read all the plays that were coming in the door and my original job with Fishamble was straightforwardly reading um well, it's six, it was technically six hours a week it was tiny like to, and read two plays a week yeah. and so something like that and um, I started to observe that the, the problem which was heartbreaking was that these plays weren't bad they were actually pretty good but by sending the play in when it wasn't as good as it might be or had flaws they were giving the company an easy chance to say no right because you know you have to be tip top to really go for it so the courses in Fishamble were actually a way with engaging with writers uh, or people who wanted to write plays before they sent the play off to wherever. Yes. To give them some ideas, to work on scripts so it would be better. And they came in originally, I don't know, about year 2000 or a bit earlier. And they were a little bit ad hoc to start with, and then gradually developed into uh, two evening courses, two weekend courses, and they became quite regular and quite successful. And out of them spiralled various exercises that I was doing, which became shows like Shorts, Whereabouts, and uh, Tiny Place for Ireland, which were all coming from working on short plays with people. So, well, I mean, let's talk about some of those because I remember seeing shorts. It's still one of my favourite nights in theatre ever just because it's that thing of like a tasting menu in a posh restaurant. If something pops up that just delights you and you go, oh, I didn't expect that. That's amazing. And then if a show comes up that you're not really particularly into or isn't your cup of tea, well, you only have to sit through it for another eight minutes and then there'll be something else to come along. They go, oh, well, that's amazing. Yeah. It, it must have been... Uh, what was that experience like putting those shows together? Oh, it was great. Um, see, I never worried about originality. I wanted... I, I only... I say this... I don't know if this is true, but I'll say it for now. Um, I only do original things when I can't find any other way of doing it in a pre-existing form. <laughs> so I was never trying to... Fish is not about novelty, but there are times when if we wish to try and access some aspect of the human condition, as it were... 
but we might have to find a way of doing something dramatically that, that we have to think of ourselves. And right. sometimes it's new and sometimes you go, oh, well, that's not over there. So what actually happened with that was I started to do this uh, towards the end of the course. I started to get interested in talking about what a complete work was. How, how would you know your play is finished, you see? And um, it's, sometimes you don't, you know, you, it's abandoned. Some people say it's never finished, it's only abandoned, mm. or that's the draft it got produced out, whatever. But I thought it would be interesting to look at a complete work. And r- rather than, um, we could look at any work, but I started to look at Samuel Beckett's Come and Go, because it's only uh, ten minutes, or it's three minutes when you read it, and you can read the whole thing and discuss in what ways this is a complete work of art. Uh, later, I've, more recently, I've been looking at other ones, but say, for example, um, Carol Churchill's uh, Seven Jewish Children. But Come and Go. And so I used to set up this exercise that was based on to write a complete work of that length and see what you could get. Mm-hmm. And um, that was it. And um, they, I was showing them, Jim, after I said, look, these are really good. Like These are actually pr- producible. Yeah. And so we did it as a public competition. And then some of the people who done courses entered and some people who had not done the courses entered. And there was this mix. And that's how that came about. And so the original shorts was, um, as you say, it was a nice selection of short plays of all different kinds. And then in Fishamble, we don't really repeat things. We could have done that as a cycle every two yeah. years, you know, but we, we didn't. And then we thought, um, I started doing exercise, which is the same, but I set people out for the afternoon around Temple Bar, and I'd say, go, go somewhere and come back with a play that is set here, yeah. for site-specific work. And that was the origins of Whereabouts, which I'm delighted to say won the Irish Times, it's a judge or something like that, Excellent. ahead of the entire Beckett Festival by the gates. So they were in the same <laughs> Not like, that it's a competition, but congratulations. I, I totally was. I was sitting at the table with Michael Gambon and uh, <laughs> Michael Dolgan and me and Jim and uh, all the Flanagan at the time. And the announcer came up and all of us were reaching for the edge of the table <laughs> in an attempt to go. And uh, it came up as a fish animal, so we were delighted with that. But so it had a remarkable effect, that one. I think, you know, what we need, I, I'd love really see a decent history written of the work of maybe say the independent theatre sector of the last 25 years mm-hmm. I mean uh, you've got people like uh, Barabbas uh, storytellers uh, you can name the, the, them all which don't exist now and yet and we'll lose the memory of that now yeah. what was done and what the uh, I know some of it's archived it's not the same and I think the whereabouts had this impact uh, you can still see to this day of essentially groups of people going around to various venues and the venues coming to life and so forth that was mm-hmm. quite and at the end of the road took it into a different direction yeah which was a, a phenomenal piece that's I'd like I, that was an exceptional night at the theatre I have to say the end of the road that was, again you see that the end of the road um, was up and down Fishamble Street and it was based on interviews I did with a man called Bill in St Francis Hospice and that was where it sounds a bit of an unlikely thing but I was struggling away with Aristotle uh, and thinking about how the way the life is presented on stage obviously tends towards the dramatic moments of a turning point of a person's life from high to low, low to high, or something mm-hmm. like that. And yet our lives aren't like that. Because I was struggling away with being a father at that time. I had children. And I was like, how do I know I'm a good father uh, if I am? And I thought, well, a lot of it is simply that I've put the miles in. I've done the shopping on a Saturday. I've walked up and down the street with the, the buggy. I have been home to make tea. You know, it's that stuff, yeah. uh, the highly repetitive stuff. That, and you go, how do you capture that, you see? So I thought what we'll do is interview, and also, if you're thinking about your life knowing that you're dying, and you're capable and willing to think about it, how do you review your life, that what is important really and what's not? What are the things where, some things in life you know are pretty big, so if you got married and you're standing there getting married, you know you're getting married, you know, mm-hmm. you're standing, and it's an out-of-body experience, you're looking at yourself going, oh dear God, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, <laughs> how have I ended up here? Yes, <laughs> it's kind of strange, but you know it's big. But there are often a lot of things that retrospectively are big. 
you know, you go for a job interview somewhere and you, you get it, or you go for another one and you don't get it, or the stuff like that, you know, that conditions everything. Mm. So Bill is a really good guy, and he was very happy to talk. Now, the origins of that one, we did, we're going to separate that out to different playwrights. So it'd be like whereabouts, but you took the man's yes. license differently. And Jim actually looked at it and looked at it again and said, uh, why don't you do it, Gavin? Because you, you've got the connection with Bill, and it would have been excessively fragmented, uh, I think. Yes. But it, so the idea was basically, can we do whereabouts, but instead of being like lots of different lives of people around the area, about one life. Yes. You see, and capture at different turning points. That, that, that was the origins of that. And that went uh, very well. And um, that spun off to show you how these things happen into Tiny Plates for Ireland. Because having done that. Yeah. So, yeah sorry. No, I was going to say, with, 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 um, with End of the Road, how much of that was you and what you did put down on the page? And how much of that was. Because Louise Lowe directed, mm. who we've had on the podcast before, oh, yeah. and who's now getting very well known for this kind of trademark style of intimate, site-specific work. Was How much of a collaboration was there between you two? Yep, so Louise Lowe. So we go back a good while, Louise Lowe, and um, actually on the original whereabouts, what I was interested in as well is is in if you live in a village or if you live in a ship all your life or a, ship, a small community, everything is known about you. You're known as so-and-so the town drunk or so-and-so the other faithful bloke or whatever. Like, you, you, you're known. And mm. that, can, that has its benefits and its losses. But in a city, you can be different things at different times different places so the the angles I'm eating now could be a very different proposition to in the morning somewhere else yes so what we thought was well you'll double the plays up and you'll meet some people twice by day and by evening and Shane Carr and Louise Lowe we asked to write specific linking pieces to the original plays that we had and we worked with the writers to discuss whether that could be the same person as this in different places yeah. and Louise came on board and we worked together and I've had a, always had a good relationship with Louise Lowe she asked me to, when she was doing roundabouts to go out to do a workshop that I do in Ballymun yeah. and I went out and did that and then she did one called the um, Bus Project which I wrote a piece for so we've had this and, and um, we saw the basin and talked a fair amount about it so when it came to the end of the road, Jim felt that now was a good time to build on that relationship with Louise in this kind of outdoor work. Um, literally, we um, got the transcripts. We both read the transcripts. Uh, it, I had strong ideas about what I wanted to do. We got a week in the lab, I think, that classic thing, and um, we, we did a map on the floor, you know, all the things you would do, yeah. you know. And we um, had actors in who were then actors in the play. I, I've got a do them a disservice but I think uh, Robbie Una John Cronin uh, D yeah. people like that and we uh, asked them what were the key scenes and how would they dramatise the scenes we knew we were going to lift it. see one of the interesting things about a life is somebody will tell you stuff like I'm telling you stuff now but there's bits they're not saying there's bits that it goes over and we had to make decisions as to whether what we go with so it's a fictionalised version I wouldn't like people to think that was 100% built because we were showing stuff that must have been a conversation somewhere yes that we were lifting so um, myself I wrote um, what you what we called a, a show document okay. which is both the scenes like the words and also a set of instructions so we would have a block of this is what happens here I think we both um, you know kind of intrigued uh, and it's nice when an audience make choices so for example you, Bill, what's Bill's favourite meal and he said well and you talked about those pubs eating in uh, there's a nice one up where the bus drivers went because they couldn't drink alcohol so they had uh, tea and uh, cheese and crackers kind right. of thing you know uh, coddle though because coddle was his main thing and again you just go yeah let's just make a load of coddle you know so during one of the scenes you get to make yummy coddle yeah I remember it was amazing <laughs> <laughs> various other people looked at it suspiciously so I think that would 
be of the kind of work we're interested in where you made decisions, you know, as the audience, and you, uh, a bit more transactional than perhaps the thing. See, what is theatre, I guess? That's always <laughs> the question. And um, I was quite, you see, what, is it Peter Brook who's The Empty Space, which is, you know, a man walks across the stage, and, and I can call that theatre, or an actor walks across the stage, and I call it theatre. See, that's a classic director's view, you know. Um, they're seeing themselves as the subjective viewer of something over there. Um, and I was kind of intrigued by the fact that in the Greek theatre, so on, I read, that the word theatre actually meant the seating area, not the whole thing. Okay. And it occurred to me, you could see theatre as a transaction. I sell you a ticket to something, and I say, look at this, this is worth a while to look at. And we show you something. And in the streetscape then, everything you see, we were not in denial about anything. Everything you saw was part of it. So that's what we were doing. We are selling you a ticket saying, look at this. This is worth your while to have a look at. You know, and we went from there. That's really interesting. Well, you said that that then gave rise to Tiny Plays. Now, it yeah. seems to me the Tiny Plays took everybody by surprise yeah. by the response. It was phenomenal. Yeah. Well, you see, myself and Jim have known each other for 25 years now. Uh, the iron rule of the dictatorship of Jim Colton in Fish Amble. Uh Jim is great. Uh, Jim is a really good bloke. And he, one of his uh, enjoyable features is his ability to say yes to things. And uh, sometimes harder, the ability to also say no. Yeah. But the ability to say yes. So we, having The End of the Road being written by me and worked in collaboration with Louise, um, as a kind of partnership, really. Um, we, I mean, even down to you met me... Uh, it, I don't like to talk about things and make it sound... It was a very... I think if people were there, it was quite a human, warm show. Like, mm. it was quite emotional. Yeah. Uh, but part of it was the interview with me, with Bill, was in it, and I was there. And that was kind of so that, you know, it was acknowledged. Uh, and Louise was also, by the way, at the, end of, what, at the end of the road, it was about someone who's going to die. And we didn't duck it. We didn't duck that at all. Uh, so how do you walk up to that without sentimentalising so you go I, I know where this is going but it's not we're not going to pull away but we're not going to make it a, a big thing either so we put barriers at the end of the road uh, to end the road and finally the child leaves over the barrier mm. they leave you know and, and you, you realise that you're staying for now but you'll you'll be one day you'll be there and Louise anyway was stood on the other side of the barrier most of the time so the, the, both the director and the actor were present um, I can't remember what that has to do with anything but uh, uh, the what happened then was Jim and I were walking home one day and we chatted away and Jim was sort of aware that we hadn't really done our next whereabouts because of yes. this. And I said to him, well, what if we... Um, th this is actually the thing about originality. Uh, th there was a series of plays in uh, The Guardian called A Million Time Plays About Britain by this guy called Craig Taylor. Now, one playwright and he'd written those. Mm. And my shift was... what. what that's right, sorry. Jim was also concerned that we wanted to, and were in fact, uh, I can discuss the productions, uh, talk about contemporary art rather more urgently because of the situation Ireland finds itself yeah. in. And um, we had gone down the road of thinking about doing a play called Angler, the Best Bank in the World, kind of in the Enron maybe, some kind of really wow. big, you know, let's take it on, and getting one writer to write that big, meaty play. And uh, the, the, the eureka moment, the light bulb moment was, instead of getting one person to write the big play, why don't we ask the people of Ireland to write something that they think the Irish people need to hear. So that was the thing. Now, need to hear could be anything. It could be, actually what we need to talk about is the Arab Spring, because of Libya at that time. Yes. So it's not saying everything has to be about Ireland, just what do the public need yeah. to be engaged with, do you think? And I said, I think, I said, um, Jim went yes immediately. I said, because I think we could just get the Irish Times to print them. 
Yeah. And and he said, yeah, I think it'd be good. And God bless the Irish Times, they were very, very quick about it. They said, yeah. yes, that is a great idea. We will commission some. We, we have the last play by Maeve Binchy, as a matter of interest, oh, coming really? up. In yes, we do. Yeah, we do. Jim um, has a long relationship with Maeve Binchy, and um, she's very, obviously, a fantastic writer. And, uh, sorry for radio listeners, but uh, on the wall here, sorry, it's one of the, it's in the other room, is um, uh, Wired to the Moon, which yes. is a production of her works. And Jim actually has the, the rights from Maeve to produce stage works of her works. Wow. So we asked her, and she wrote a little play for us. It's lovely. Wow. Uh, so that'll be on in March next year. So Tiny Place Round Volume 2 is uh, March next year. And that was it, really. It, it was uh, it went bang. It went bang after yeah. that, because the moment the Irish Times said, well, uh, the Cop- Irish Copyright Licensing Association came in behind us, they'll pay the writers' fees. as a creative writing competition for Ireland. And so the moment you knew you'd get, I think, uh, 250 or 300 euro, the possibility of publication in the Irish Times and staged and, and staged people yeah. and we just the entries were phenomenal it was huge do you remember the numbers on it how many yeah. thousands or... it, it was 1700 entries um, so 1700 yeah so the word count was much bigger than War and Peace possibly two volumes imagine War and Peace twice it was that level and <laughs> I read them and Marquetta our manager is it true you read every single one it is true yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus <laughs> it was fascinating we had, we had the spreadsheet so Marquetta puts them in uh, sorry Actually, edit that one later. Uh, Maketa Dowling, our general manager, um, made the greatest Excel sheet ever known to anyone ever in Dropbox, which is this shareable thing. Yes. And um, we, we, we read them. I mean, I read the lot. So we had a panel together and we did it all totally upfront and carefully and, you know, went through a lot. It, it, it was fascinating. I mean, I think for a while there, and I, I had a snapshot of what at least the Irish Times reading public was thinking. Yes. This massive snapshot of what people thought was important, you know? And presumably was it, um, you know, for every ten plays you got in, four about banks, two about the Catholic Church, and then a, a smattering of other things? Well, it's interesting what wasn't there. I thought that there was far less about the Catholic Church than I'd expected. Right. And uh, some of it, in effect, fairly cliched. And some of it simply reversals, so they're not all bad, you know, Okay. kind of thing. You know, um, yes, but an awful lot about uh, uh, banking and job losses. And, and you know, it was it's fascinating, the different insight. Every county in Ireland was represented... Uh, Northern Ireland as well. It was, it was great, you know. And uh, um, it, but the Irish language uh, only three plays in the Irish language. Three of seventeen hundred. Yeah, and we carefully said the play could be English or Irish, or if it is any other language, please provide us with translation. So yeah. and we had an Irish reader ready to go. Yes. So that was kind of just intriguing to me that wow. that wasn't there. Um, then the uh, what are other aspects? Fifty fifty male and female which I looked at afterwards and the, the selection was slightly skewed male because the commissions were slightly skewed male and that strikes me as being kind of typical yeah. the fringe for example it will the last few years I've looked at it is two thirds female to one third male really? But, yeah so in the younger shorter more experimental works the, the, the female theatre maker artist writer is predominant but when it shifts into the main stages you've still got this bias the other way you know wow and do you think that maybe then if those are the people who are being supported and pushed early on in the career that possibly, you know, 10 years down the road or 15 years down the road, that that male bias in the more established houses will have balanced out possibly? Or does that... Um, I think so. And, and def- I mean, top of the head stuff. I mean, also the way in which theatre has made the scale of it and the type kind of it would be, is shifting as well. I mean, yeah. you are... It's, it's interesting, Lachlan pro, uh, programming uh, a lot of... I think one of the... Most impressive and very stupid things that he did. He's a very interesting man, Lachlan, and he uh, put the reviewed policy. Yes. And that brought back a lot of works. But, and yeah, I mean, if you look at uh, Amy Conroy coming in, people like that, 
and Louise Lowe herself uh, with Anu Productions um, in, in The Laundry and um, World's End Lane and now another one, new one. So yeah, so you're seeing not only different artists come in, female artists, but you're also seeing different kinds of works, I think. Well, talking about reviewed Rise Productions uh, and yeah, Gavin yeah. Costick have some experience with it. Let's talk about the birth of the show in a bag project. Oh, yeah. it, it was your baby. Was it just a, a, a thing that popped into your head one day? Yeah, I mean, again, you see... Yeah, it was, yeah. And, and, and we're giving up to round three and I'm in slightly nightmare mode at the moment. So it's, it's probably, you catch me in four weeks, I'll be much more cheerful when we see the shows. Um, and everyone is great. So, yeah, that, what that was, was um, the Fringe uh, itself has always had a bit of a problem with new writing. And when I was with, uh, when Wolfgang Hoffman was there, he very honestly said to me that he um, he, he was interested in physical theatre and all that kind of thing. And he, he said, I, I don't want to do these plays. And Jenny Jennings was, was there as well. And she said to me that new writing would come in, they'd say yes to the play, but the play wouldn't improve to the fringe. And when they were saying yes to the play, they were really saying yes if it comes to its best possibility. So I remember saying to her at the time, why don't we put it in a, uh, a free workshop for everyone who's got a new writing thing in the fringe? And the new Fishamble Award developed out of that idea, and right. other workshops developed out of that idea. And that was Jenny Jennings. And then I was talking to Rosha when she was in, and she was saying that the readings and things, the new writing, well, it, it didn't seem to really work for her. Uh, so I had an idea for new writing in the fringe, and we had the fish on board, and I'll stow that idea but I had this idea and I was chatting to her and she said sort of out of nowhere my memory of it is she said sort of out of nowhere but what about the performers because there's so many great performers who don't have the material you know that they could have to do something with and she started talking about uh, my memory again is she started talking about something that was done in Edinburgh something done in the Sharper and I have a bit of the old uh, not exactly national pride but I said uh, hold it there let's that's the originality I was thinking well no, let's think about ourselves like, what, what, what can we do and I came back to this office and I said, I know what I'm going to do. And I basically said, we'll ask actors to apply, singly or in pairs. Now, the reason for the in pairs is, I was perfectly happy to write three-handers. But if you look at things like Little Gem, it's very hard to keep three people together, even because people drop out and have other work and so yeah. forth. So the two-hander limit is not artistic. It's actually because two people need to commit to spend that time together yeah. to do the work, you see. So I said, singly or in pairs, in you come, you have the idea... We'll go with five ideas if we can negotiate a kind of idea of it. So David Heap came in, yes. and his thing was um, he wanted to do the life of Adolf Hitler, right? Because he said he looks surprising like Adolf Hitler. And I said to him, well, I can't do Adolf Hitler, but if you think about biography, why don't we do Jonathan Swift? Because it, I know more about Swift. He talks about the South Sea bubble or the bubble of the banking bubble collapse of the 1720s, which is obvious relevance now. Modest Proposals, one of the great pieces of prose ever written, and is about an economic collapse. Yeah. Why did we do that? And he said, yes. Yeah. So that'd be typical of the sort of negotiation. Sure. That you and I had, for example. Yeah. You know, well, my refusal. Well, well, yeah. my, my promise that I would do any sport in the world with the exception of boxing. That's exactly right. <laughs> and guess who won that argument? Yeah, well, <laughs> I think they've all been said. The most successful has been where we can agree quickly that the the, the the passion of what you want to do and what I'm able to offer. Mm. Uh, the thing. So the, basically, the fringe fish amble and the Irish City Institute all came together to make that uh, possible as a, a thing. Yeah, and was it, was it also partly driven, I think I heard you talk once about 
that there was something like 60-odd new venues that sprouted up through yeah. that 15 years of Celtic Tiger thing where, yeah. in their infinite wisdom, the Fianna Fáil-led government said, we yeah. want to invest in the arts, and the only language they understood was investment yeah. in bricks and mortar rather than programming money or, yes. or, or bursaries or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yes, that's exactly it. I thought so we... there were these venues with not venues without shows to go into them yeah. and actors without work to... Well, we all have these stunning venues all around Ireland. Yeah, it's exactly it. I mean, it, you know, if you flooded the Irish theatre system with money, which is only, you know, a, an instrument to an end, um, you would have flourishing theatres all over the place. Because I think, I think, I actually do think that Irish acting, uh, there's levels of Irish acting, like, really strong, that, that they're not working all the time, and there are these venues that aren't open all the time, and they do want to set, they set up the networks, they're trying to get people around, they're trying to do this, so you kind of go, okay, well, the thing to do is, if, if you can make a show that... 60 people, 70 people would come to pay 10 euro each and be entertained, that's a hit. Yeah. That's what you, you can do. And that, that can go on forever. <laughs> or at least, you know, for as long as the people involved in it are finding it rewarding to do it. So that's what we're trying to do, yeah. And the, the, the venues uh, would have a selection of shows that would be of a certain quality. Yeah. You know. Were you surprised at how successful it was as a project? Yeah, I, I, I with Fish Amble, I do try, before a show goes on, to... Uh, write almost a review or a preview or set some sort of bar as to what we think of this because uh, one of my views is that these people are delusional frankly and they're forever coming out of production and going well we knew that wouldn't work or, or yeah. you know or that was obviously going to be a hard sell I'm going well if you knew that what were you doing like, <laughs> so uh, I think I set myself a bar simply enough in the first go round that there would be four weeks worth of work out of the five shows that were showcased right. I would, in terms of who, everyone's time and effort you know, I thought, well, that would be a minimum. And we ended up, I think, and it's still ongoing uh, with a number of things, but we ended up, I think, with 110 performances Jesus. for the five shows. That's so four bad. weeks each on average. Wow. You know, it, it wasn't bad at all. Like, it was great. That's... And they went international, which is... Yeah, of course, which is, which is lovely. And um, obviously, the, the thing was that you didn't work with everybody in the same way. I mean, for some people were devising and yeah. you were there in kind of a, a script editor dramaturg mode and sure. for some people obviously with us with Fight Night yeah. it was traditional writer setup of go yeah. and lock yourself away in a room at a typewriter and, and yeah. come back with a draft well I, I, I'm i simultaneously Mike Tyson I think something like he was, he, he was a monster of ego but with no self esteem or something like that it's quite interesting come on. I mean I'm definitely a monster of ego uh, but at the same time in the moment I'm in going through my classic uh, writer's nightmare mode so I, I say these things and then afterwards go what the earth stuff I think I was doing I initially said I'll write five shows. I will just write five shows. And then, as you say, see, when Dave Heap came in and said he wanted to do Hitler, and I said Swift, I thought, great. We, I will do word for word Swift, and he's a very cultured man. So we both, he came in with his well-thumbed copy of Swift. I got my old volume of Swift out. The, the English literature came in handy in the end. And I think it was the work of a day wow. to agree that this was the text. And quite intelligent thought. It wasn't, it wasn't a casual day. It was hmm. a well-thought-out day. And we agreed that, yes, that that would do and fine I thought well this is great so one of the shows was taken care of that way mm-hmm. and yes you're absolutely right so initially although I was thinking well alright then uh, a good example take a second for example would be Sonia Kelly's The Wheelchair on My Face yes from round two which is yeah. round two of Shaun of which is now still taking over the it's, whole world it's in Edinburgh it's, it's doing its four weeks I think um, yes it, it's got its fringe first in Edinburgh it's in Markham so that was an interesting one where she came in and she told she's so funny she's a comedian she's funny she's a talented actor all that and she comes in and tells a story about her childhood and the glasses. And I said, yeah, I can't write that for you. 
in the sense that that is so you and your story and everything yeah. you tell us is coming from you uh, would you be interested in writing it uh, and she said yeah she would with support so the initial thing I think with that one was simply two days in this room identifying the simplest things you know that we would concentrate on the age of seven because right. that was the age she went from not being diagnosed to being diagnosed and it was also the age of first communion I think yeah it would be so it's a year in school and so we agree because actually the origin of that show could have been when she was 16 could have been when she was 18 could have been anything but we said no we'll concentrate on that year and she wrote a draft with me and then she moved on to Gina Moxley the director and the two of them went away and worked and worked and worked so that would be an example of where she wrote the play wow but that, that was the method yeah and so we're gearing up for round three now yeah, yeah, for, yeah. for the bridge this year. <laughs> and you're right yeah. smack in the middle of everything. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not terrified about the talents and stuff. I'm terrified more about uh, getting done. Yeah, look, it's going to be great. Go along, see your shows. There's a great uh, variety of, uh, of works out there. Um, it's just kind of interesting. I think one of the... It's not, whether it's healthy or not, I don't know. One of the things I'm proudest of ever having done are a sequence of shows for Whiplash, for The Fringe, uh, four years running. Uh, in one year it was the only Irish show to be nominated it was done in a thunderstorm and we used to get the best of Irish actors because I used to blackmail them so I'd meet them in supermarkets and say oh you know <laughs> so to like Aidan Kelly I think was in one Mary Murray was in one there's a huge range Janet Moore and, um, um, sorry I'm seeing people in my head there's a huge range yeah. but also a cast of 50 yes so this was bringing together some of the things that came from Paul Burke is uh, sadly he's off being successful but he is Ireland's stunt fight coordinator. He's a great yes. stunt fight man. And uh, he wanted to do Henry the Sixth book from the Wars of Roses. And Wolfgang knocked him back because he didn't really see why. And so he came back the next year and said to me, you want to do this for Wolfgang since you want to? And I said, and I looked at Henry the Sixth, I said, why, why would you edit something to such an extent that it won't really make much sense anymore? Why not just write a version of Henry the Sixth? Yes. Yourself. So I went back to the source material that Shakespeare had and reworked from there and it was very political because like Shakespeare I just went I sod it I'll talk about contemporary events mm -hmm. so I was actually at that point talking about the uh, planned invasion of Iraq the next year was the invasion of Iraq and the occupation but this was England France uh, and then the retreat out of Iraq and then Spartacus and we went into a slave revolt so we were consciously doing highly political works from source material with um, 50 odd people yeah. now those shows were they were only ever done once as a thing they were always free and they were frightening they were frightening to pull together. If you ever worked on people came out just trembling. Um, partly because of this, they were actually perfectly safe because he is perfectly safe. Yeah. But what you were looking at, you're going, fucking hell, like, are they really doing that? You yeah. Know? And they were, you know, and it was extreme. Um, but also pulling it together was very much a case of like, you know, I, th I think I even saw um, Paul Reed and him look pale once when he suddenly realised he was Spartacus. Yes. He, he just agreed to be in the show and suddenly he was Spartacus and he was going, I'm what? And we've got how long? And I've got two weeks and the, the script is where now. So there's this tremendous pull together. Now, whether that's a healthy way of doing things or not, the, the, I do feel like coming into it now, two to three weeks before the fringe, there's this now, actually, we have to pull this together now. The, this has to be pulled and the people are, you know, quite rightly getting hold of me. I mean, tonight I'll be doing another script reading, you know, wow. next two weeks are kind of very solid. Wow. They're looking good. They're looking great. They're great. It's just cool. me. <laughs> so, uh, talk to me then about either what's next for you or ambitions. What at this stage, having done as much as you have and kind of as varied stuff yeah. as you have, are there any uh, particular personal ambitions for you or or big global plans for that that you'd like to still pursue? God, that's a really good question. And uh, if anyone see, 
I've written an opera with Raymond Dean, which was done a couple of years back, and we now hear that RTE Orchestra are happy to produce it next year, so I'm quite proud of that. I mean, I, I think I'm eclectic. I think that, and I've relaxed about that now. I, I, I'm not a writer who, if you saw one work to the other, you would necessarily know that that's in the same blog. Yes. Unlike some of the more successful writers where you, you would know. There's a very definite Conor McPherson brand or yeah. whatever. Yeah, the, 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 but I'm not like that. So I and I will intend to go on like that. I think um, I'm interested in developing work for to get the maximum possible out of what you're doing, and it, it could be anything. Uh, uh, certain places in different ways. I always knew when we did Fight Night exactly what we were doing, which is I think possibly why it worked because I knew what you were doing and what I was doing, and, and that was the play it was, you know. Mm. And we gave it a robust structured with hearts, you know, that's... Well, that's the thing, I mean, to this day, coming back to it now with this recent batch of stuff, it just, you, the thing that grabs you instantly is just how well put together a play it is. I mean, it, it's exceedingly well structured. It's a it's a beautiful piece of writing. Well, it's really interesting, I'm writing a book for D. Burke, which is challenging, and that is, be interesting. I'm also interested in how do you tell an audience how to enjoy something, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, with D's one, it's much more fragmented, but the, the character is fragmented. You know, it's really interesting to try and write something that is gives that sense of uh, someone whose life is shattered, mm-hmm. and yes, at the same time, give it a coherent, a coherent incoherency is an interesting challenge. So that's right. really what we're working on at the moment. So yes, structure o- occupies me all the time. I, I mean, I structure is meaning. What you people walk away, the structure will define the work. So you have to all the time with structure. I. Um, and you work his way at that. Which may, the structure might be invisible. You might not realise it, but it's, it, usually I know what I'm doing. And it's there. Um, no, I think it's interesting. Fishamble, we're working hard at Fishamble. Jim, Macassar, myself, we're really trying to get those plays. We're really trying to engage and get the work out. And um, survival is tough, like it is. Yeah. You know, a very, very tough environment. Um, and we feel we have something to offer and we're, we keep offering it. So we'll see us keep going and produce new work of all different kinds. And tour it. Pat Kinnevan, uh, with both Silent and Forgotten, has been remarkable yeah. for us, and we hope there'll be a third work there. So the fish amble will be really pushing away. Right. Um, pushing away in a good way, I think, you know, getting work out. And then myself, uh, I'm teaching a little at the Lear now. Uh, right, okay. Academy, uh, with the actors and the there. Uh, <laughs> if, if I had, you know, if I had time to be home in bed with my feet up, which I would like more of. See, my family tell me off because I come home and snooze. I send it an old daddy. So I, I go out <laughs> early in the morning and I come back and I have a kip and then I wake up and carry on uh, into the evening. And then uh, life would be pretty good. Like, you know, as in... I'm grateful. I think I'm grateful. I have the opportunity that I can develop work and push forward in different areas. So I will keep open to that, really. Do you have a label for yourself or is there one particular discipline where you're most happy I mean are you a writer are you a dramaturg are you a performer are you all of the above is there one that sits more comfortably with you um, well my friend Irene I mentioned earlier said of me once the nicest thing anyone ever said of me which is oh Gavin he's a quiet person who chats a lot <laughs> I thought it was great I thought nice I, I could be this profound person who just bangs on about things Um it, no, I, I, I've, I've spent my life, I suppose, um, walking away from boxes. I don't like being in boxes, mm. so I, I don't really... I mean, someone said to me once, um, oh, well, you're very unusual because you're, you're a playwright who's also a dramaturg. I, I kind of didn't... I thought, oh, I don't really like that. But, I mean, I think um, 
oh God, words are just words and the labels you put on things. So, and it's interesting that the words come after the event. So often you would get things like postmodernism, post-traumatic theatre, which are actually describing things that artists have made. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's kind of interesting when myself and Louise working together, you, when you haven't got the words to describe what you're trying to do, sometimes, sometimes it's just pants, right? But sometimes you're onto something because you're actually trying to do stuff that there is no language for. Sure. Yes, and that's going to be quite exciting. It can be a little frustrating for people around you because it gets a bit zen. You go, well, we'll try this or we'll try that. Mm. And you go, it's no method stuff. Um, so I would keep persistently trying to avoid being put in boxes. I, I, it would not occur to me not to be able to do something. Uh, I, would, I would keep going like that. Uh, I think if I would have to put a label on it somehow, I think a player playwright is a kind of visionary, a, a visionary of their own work and their own work in relationship to an audience. I sometimes say the playwright uh, is the first audience of their own play. Right. You know, you, you, you're the visionary. And the vision can come out completely naturally without any conscious thought, or it can require structuring and, uh, and rational work as well. But the two go together, so the rational ability to uh, have the skills to make decisions with a visionary aspect that just comes, you know, and you try and get those things working together. And so therefore, if it's that, then I don't, you know, immediately you kind of realise, well, it could take place in the theatre or it might not, or it might be, it it could be anything because you're just making the vision happen. Well, I tell you, I look forward to seeing many more of your visions being Thank made you. happen in the coming years. Gavin, that was amazing. Thank you so much for that. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks, thanks very much, Angus. That was great. So there you have it. The great Gavin Costick. So privileged and honoured to have had him on the podcast. He's a guy I have so much time for and, uh, and has become a really good mate over the years, I have to say. Uh, you know, I'll never forget the, the day Gavin handed me the very first draft of Fight Night uh, was a remarkable one because I had been tinkering with a one-man show about a third-generation amateur sportsman for a couple of years. Uh, in my head, originally, it was a Gaelic footballer, but when I went in to, to pitch what became Fight Night to the show in a bag team, uh, I just went in and, and removed the guy reference, just said, okay it's an amateur sportsman on the basis that there was one sport and one sport alone I refused to touch which was of course boxing Um, and so uh, Gavin put this whole thing together but Gavin never read that half written unfinished one man show that I'd been kind of working on Uh, and when he handed me the first draft on day one I, uh, I read through the first page and I think within I think within maybe the first or second page there were already two uh, kind of pretty massive things from my unfinished draft which I had never mentioned to Gavin but telepathically he had included in the script which was just an amazing experience and at that stage you go right we're on the same page here we really could be onto something and you know luckily for us it has gone on and gone on and gone on and you know signs on it here we are still performing it two years later uh, and I'm, I'm I'm internally grateful to him he's a, he's a superstar and, and I love him to bits so look that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of what is going on around town and around the country uh, as we look to the various theatres around Dublin Theatre Upstairs has Down by the River starring the brilliant Michael Bates coming in there uh, the Viking Theatre has Oleana and that's going to be followed by My Mother Said I Never Should The Gate of course still has A Woman of No Importance Bewley's Cafe Theatre has Village Wooing Smock Alley has Rambler Man with True West uh, and uh, also The Hunt for Red Willie from that new company Exit Excitedly The New Theatre has The Horse Trading Diaries 
Days uh, at the Olympia Theatre Gorilla Days in Ireland is now on tour up from Cork and of course our National Theatre the Abbey Theatre has the plough and the stars as we look around the country and head south down to Cork the Everyman has Woman and Scarecrow by the great Marina Carr uh, and of course as ever there's a full programme of stuff going on at Cork Arts Theatre all the details on that can be found at corkartstheatre.com uh, moving west to Limerick and Bottom Dog Theatre Company um, have what looks like a really exciting season of rehearsed readings coming up I think exclusively of new plays um, which looks really interesting great team assembled for that you can get all the information on those readings at bottomdogtheatre.com uh, and moving north up to Belfast the Lyric has uh, the Gruffalo playing there at the moment direct from the West End so if you've got any small kids in your life I'm sure they're a fan of the Gruffalo you can bring them up there for that and that will of course be followed by Connell Morrison's new version of Playboy of the Western World uh, and that's something that will be very exciting to go and see now also worth mentioning is um, the fact that NAYD are seeking scripts for its new stage project and its Playshare collection new stage is NAYD's writing initiative for Irish youth theatre and Playshare is a collection of plays suitable for youth drama and theatre groups made available through NAYD so if you have written or staged any original plays that are suitable for young ensembles please do send them in to them at National Association for Youth Drama 7 North Great George's Street Dublin 1 and of course the good news there is that they will pay the writers a small royalty fee for their work so you're not doing nothing for nothing so look that is us that is episode 43 in the books we will of course be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast for Angus Og McAnally I'm Angus Og McAnally we'll see you next week 